isn't about him thinking that he knows it all. I don't even believe that. I just think that this guy is not on the level he thinks he is. I think he's in dream world. You know what? I know this sounds terrible. I think he should finish. <laughs> no, that's, that's too hard. I, should, I, should, I think that's he should finish. Listen, you can't, I personally don't think, right, he's a hard puncher anyway. In this game, you need to get a, get a jail card. You need to be able to put them away. Brock them up. You need to smash them up. Maybe, as you said, I'm clearly not as good as I thought I was. I maybe need to change the people around me or augment them or change the way that I train or whatever it is. I think if it's you a bit do more all than that, yeah, why do you think absolutely. it's more than that? I think I, it's a bit more than that. In the, because, listen, you're either good at boxing or you're not. So you, you don't think he actually you're has the more instinctive you're tools? You're boxing or you're not. His dad's been saying that he's unbelievable, that he's going to shock the world. Reality's tonight, and reality hits home hard. This is it. I'm sorry, Duke. I know you don't want to hear this. I know you don't want to hear this. Yeah, I know you don't want to hear this because I was telling you earlier. It's just such a shame that somebody can be built up to win some kind of belt like that and then make out your this superhuman guy next gen. You know, walking in these houses, making out you're gonna buy them and all this stuff, and because you're gonna knock George out. It didn't happen. On which camera can I look into to tell Chris Eubanks Jr. to finish? And welcome back to the to the number one podcast in the sport where. Every time we think the sport's on its backside, we get moments like Saturday night. And it reminds us that when done right, boxing's the greatest sport. It's the greatest sport in the world. I'm still trying to get my head around what happened on Saturday night. Like, I think the shock that most boxing fans felt was seismic. So I don't know if people be smart after the fact to say, well, they had money on Liam Smith for the KO. Okay. But no one thought the fight would end the way it did. Like combustible in the build-up and explosive in the finish. You know, we we moan a lot about pay-per-view and we say, oh, why are we having to pay this? But for all of those who paid for that pay-per-view on Saturday night, you will look back on that and go, I got my money's worth. What I got in that pay-per-view was the next best thing to actually being in that arena. But today, today you got to praise Liam Smith. Right? Don't water down the victory. Don't say, yeah, but, but this, but that. No. Liam Smith's a man at 33, 34 years old, carrying a fair few miles. You know, he's, he's been in there tough. He's, he's taken his lumps. And he's into the sunset of his career. And I think even he would admit that. So being able with all of those miles on the clock, with all of those years served in the game, amateur and professional, we have to appreciate what a, a true stalwart of British boxing has done. And I did tweet that I thought the Smith family were, and let me say properly so people understand everything, when they give it context and nuance. As British boxers, the Smith family are in that mediocre middle. Now, let me explain. 
most people understand what the bell curve is, right? So the bell curve states this, and the actual numbers involved vary, but 15% are normally really good or elite. 15% are just really bad or garbage. And then there's like the 70% in the middle that they call the mediocre, mediocre middle, right? And if you break boxing down into roughly, roughly six, six different categories, right? And we'll go from lowest to highest. Kind of area level in English. So we call that sub-British, right? So those two categories, you're an area level champ or you're an English level champ. And then we've got British and European and we'll include the Commonwealth within that. So British and Commonwealth, then European. So now we've got four layers. And we've got two layers above that, world level and elite level. My argument was of all the Smith brothers, their best wins were in that British tier. You know, and people come back and say, yeah, but Paul Smith beat Abraham. That's not what BoxRex says. All of their best wins came in that British slash Commonwealth tier. Because anything above that was either a defeat or was an asterisk, asterisk alongside it. So no, I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying that their sweet spot is in that British slash Commonwealth level at a push European level. They've never delivered for us at the world level and they've never delivered for us at the elite level. And that's okay, by the way, because if, if that's their lane, they're really good in their lane. They dominate that lane. If you look at some of the most entertaining, spectacular fights we've seen, it's been Smith brothers in British dust-ups. We saw one on Saturday night and we also saw one with Callum Smith and Rocky Fielding. Um, I'd, even I'd even class, this is going to be controversial, Callum Smith versus George Groves as essentially a, a world British title fight, if we're being honest. Because George wasn't that tier that James DeGale was, where James was a world-level operator. I think George kind of snuck in there. Because how many times did it take for him to get to that level? And by the way, if someone asks me, do I think Frotch is elite? The answer is yes. That's why he's in the Hall of Fame. So, so Liam is the master of the level that Eubank operates at. He shows it time and time again. Did it to Liam Williams with ease. Did it to Eggington with ease. Did it to Fowler with ease. And now he's done it to Chris. That's his lane. And I think we, we overlooked that. I mean, and maybe we ascribed too much value to what Chris had achieved in boxing. Maybe we, we assumed wins against guys like Reynold Quinlan and Avni Yildrim imbued some kind of excellence. And um, Liam Smith showed that they didn't. So massive hats off to Liam Smith for his performance. Massive hats off to Joe McNally. You got to give this guy credit. Um, I'm going to shine some light on the trainer before I talk about what I saw in the ring and maybe some of the aspects of the builder. But a lot of people won't know who Joe McNally is because he's a young guy. Like he's, he's my generation-ish, maybe a year or two younger, but he's my generation. So I remember him and he's from the era of, right, I've got to go back in the Rolodex here. He would have fought James DeGale in one of his ABA final wins. I can't remember which one it was, but it was when there was a load of energy. I remember Steve Bunce talking about this when he came down to the lodge. There's, there's this group of kids from Liverpool who are going to take over the scene. And he named Bellew, Paul Edwards, who went on to coach GB. Uh, Stephen Smith was in that mix. 
and Joe McNally was in that mix. And this has got to be mid 2000s. And who else was in that? Joe Selkirk. I think you can whack Joe Selkirk in there, but he may predate that by a year. But you've got this, this kind of group of guys from Liverpool with Liam Smith to come a year or two afterwards. And they, they split roughly between the two gyms, the Solly and Rotunda. All really good. I think Bellew won that year. Stephen Smith won that year. Paul Edwards won. And I imagine Joe McNally lost because it's James DeGale. So Joe McNally's no mug as a boxer. Wasn't all that as a professional, but he was signed to Haymaker. So he was one of the Haymaker boxers after that kind of amateur run. I don't think he went for the 2008 Olympics. Well, why would you when James DeGale's right there? Now, I remember he boxes a southpaw, but he was on Haymaker. And when Satanta collapsed, his career kind of went into free fall. And he never got the promotional backing after that, which was a shame. So lose track of him, pops up now and you start seeing this name, Joe McNally. I'm like, oh, okay. That's the guy that fought DeGale. Training Liam Smith, now training Josh Taylor. And I'm just like, mate, I understand how hard that job is. And I understand the stick you're going to get. You're probably not going to get all the credit you deserve. And people are going to say, who is this guy? He's not a name brand trainer. But I'm going to take my hat off to Joe McNally. Um, I love how he conducts himself. Um, Things I hear about him in the gym, his insight, his knowledge. Massive credit where credit's due. Now, here's the kicker that maybe we all overlooked because we fell in love with the Eubank mystique. Joe McNally is in Liverpool. And let's assume he trains Liam out of Rotunda, right? We'll just say he trains him out of the Rotunda. So Joe McNally is a guy that Liam Smith has known since he was a kid. Joe McNally is someone Natasha Jonas has known since she started boxing. Joe McNally's probably roughly, he's about the same age as Liam Smith and Tony Bellew. A little bit older than Swifty Smith. They're all mates. They all pop back into that gym. So now look at that collective brains trust around Liam Smith. Look at the intellectual horsepower when it comes to boxing. Look at the experience when it comes to boxing. Look at what Liam surrounds himself with when he's in camp. And we can knock their careers and say they never quite hit world level. Cool. They didn't need to for Eubank. They just needed Liam to be the best version of him. And you've got that entire brains trust around and they don't have to be there day in and day out. But it's a resource you tap into. A resource I don't believe Chris had. So you've got that combined brains trust keeping Liam honest, forcing Liam to be a better person. And at the head of that's Joe McNally, a guy who who knows boxing. I mean, like, if you've jumped in the ring with DeGale, you know what unorthodox and awkward is. And I think these are all the things we kind of overlooked because for most boxing fans, the media don't touch on these things. Maybe they should do more episodes about stuff like this. But they don't touch on what sits behind in the camp because everyone's going to come out and say they had a fantastic camp. They're going to come out in KFC jackets and say, I only need to be 50%. You're going to eat a piece of chicken before the way. You're going to do all of these things, and I get it. But fans never get to see what happens in camp. How many sessions did you miss? Because you were tired, because you were injured. How many sessions had to be modified because mentally you weren't there? How many times did you mentally checked out of a session because it wasn't going your way? All these things you don't see, but they all add up. And on Saturday night, what it looked like was Liam had a fantastic camp and the other side didn't. But not only that, like I said earlier, 
when you've got that collective brains trust that they have up in Liverpool, you're, you're going to ask the right questions. And when you ask the right questions, you eventually get to the right answers. And so you see this tactical plan that Liam's got, and it's this. Don't let Eubank get confident. That was it entirely. Yes, Liam had the same shell guard he's always had. He had in his Gallagher phase. I guess it's where he's comfortable. But the head's moving. Eubank's not getting that, that purchase on the jab that he's used to, so he can't trigger everything else off. You know, this new version of Eubank wants to box a bit more. You know what I mean? It's, it's like trying to ride a bike with no pedals, but okay. Meanwhile, Liam, Liam's using everything he's learnt in victory and defeat. You've got to remember, if Eubank wants to be a tough man who's busy and throws loads of punches, Liam's already done that with, what's his name? Sam Eginton. You want to be that explosive puncher who flatters to deceive? He already did that with Fowler. You want to be the hard, bruising, tough guy with foreheads and elbows everywhere? He already did that with Liam, with Liam Williams. You want to be a monster puncher that everyone's afraid of? He did that with Jaime Munguia. You want to be that all-round complete boxer and all-time great? He already did that with Canelo. So now you're looking at it going, what can Eubank really give Liam that he hasn't seen before? Not much. So Liam Smith goes into that and he says, what if I'm the guy that comes forward? What if the smaller guy, the supposedly smaller and weaker guy comes forward? How will Chris react to that? If I can come forward behind this high guard and not really give him openings and when he feels he can set his feet, I start moving my head. If I start punching in combinations and don't allow him into the conversation, how is Chris going to react? Has he got that elite schooling? to understand where the opportunities are. That was the question Liam posed to Chris Eubank Jr. And you saw that in round one, where Liam looked like the guy who had spent more years in the game. There's no, there's no debate in that. Liam looked like the guy who understood boxing better than Chris. And if you guys want to know how you know this when you see two people fighting, it comes down to one word, structure. The best boxers you will see have structure. Sometimes it's hard to read. Sometimes it's hard to figure out. And that's their gift. And they can often tweak the parameters of that structure. But structure is structure. And what it means is they can repeat activity at a high level consistently, round after round. All they have to do is be fit enough to do that. So with Liam Smith... The feet move at the same cadence. The head will move at the same cadence. The punches will come at you in pretty similar fashion and form and structure. He may tweak the parameters to get more accuracy and more purchase or play with the timing a bit. But Liam was structured. And you'd almost say he looked more composed, right? That's what we'd say. And you contrast that with Eubank Jr., who looked all over the place. It looked like... 20% of the time he was Roy Jones, 25% of the time he was old Eubank against Avni Yildrim, then he was at Eubank against Groves, and all of these things, like it never looked structured. And so, let's come back to this. When you've come up the way the Smith brothers have, from the Rotunda and all of this stuff, 
you have a structure by which you understand boxing. And then on top of that, you put your personality and your experiences on top, right? Eubank doesn't look like he's got that foundation. It looks like he's just got loads of different ideas he wants to do, but they don't knit together into a coherent structure. So luckily we, we, we had about three and a half rounds of this. So we, we got to see pretty quickly what was happening. Liam Smith says, I'm going to push you backwards. Why? Most people can't box going backwards. You, you're, you're a special guy if you can box going backwards. And that's different to boxing on the back foot. So boxing on the back foot is more static, right? You shift your weight backwards, yeah? And you draw people in with a feint or a throwaway jab. And then your aim is to counterpunch off the back foot, you know, inflict some damage, destroy confidence. Boxing backwards is the ability to be equally as devastating going backwards as you are going forwards. Handful of people can pull that off. You've seen Ali do it. Like the elite can do it. Mayweather can do it. The truly elite guys can do it. And you saw Mayweather doing that with Hatton, but then Mayweather also showed other levels and showed that he can mix it with Hatton on the inside. But there were guys who couldn't do it. For example, Carl Froch couldn't do it. And that's how Ward was able to win that fight. Just force Carl to go backwards. And Carl's like, I don't know what to do here. Andy Ruiz did it to Joshua. Joshua had no idea how to box going backwards. Still doesn't. It's a hard skill to learn. And I'm surprised that after the first round, when you knew what Liam was going to do, the Eubank corner didn't say, you got to dominate the middle of that ring. Now, maybe they had the tactic of, we're going to try and box with Liam Smith for the first few rounds, and then we'll put it on him. But then I'm like, hold on. You're not going to outbox Liam Smith, a guy who, from when he was a teenager, has been one of the best in this country in his weight class. And that has been true for his whole career. Liam Smith has been one of the best operators in his weight class in this country his whole career. You're, you, Chris, are not going to outbox him. You don't have the tools. You don't have the experience. You don't have the eye to do so. The best version of Eubank is seek and destroy Chris. Once he didn't offer that to Liam, Liam knew this was just meat and drink. And yes, all of this is revisionist. All of this is you're only saying this after the fact. Yes, and I hold my hands up because I thought Eubank would be better. I thought the team around him would know more. Hold my hands up. We, we were mostly wrong. But to see Eubank trying to go shot for shot with someone like Liam, I mean, Liam's a combination puncher. I just thought, wow, this is going to be a long night for Chris because you could see it was taking a lot out of Liam, but it was also taking a lot out of Chris. And the question was, whose tank was going to empty first, both physically and mentally? Because Liam's approach was, if I'm relentless, he's going to have to be even more relentless than me. And Liam was like, I don't believe he can be. And even if he is, I don't believe he's got the tools, the skills or the experience to live with me. A gamble that paid off handsomely, handsomely for Liam Smith. Because early in the fight, he had Chris hurt. There was a shot, I think it was a right hand that had Chris going backwards. And you're like, whoa, what's going on here? Because it's rare you see Chris knocked backwards by a shot. So it's like, what's going on here? And then you had more of the same in the second round. You saw that Liam was asserting his dominance. It's almost like the third round, he thought, 
uh, there's nothing here that scares me. Let me stick it on him. And then at that point, Eubank threw those uppercuts and started to to let Liam know that actually I am in this fight. Now, I don't know if that was almost like a final stand to say, I'm so tired. I'm so weak. I've got to do something so you respect me. But Liam's been there before. At that British level, you know what I mean? At that British level, Liam's been there before. And he knows he just has to keep turning that screw like he's done. And I'm going to give Joe Gallagher his credit because that was the Gallagher way. We're going to keep turning that screw and gamble that they crack before we do. And at British level, worked. Worked handsomely. Fitter, stronger, mentally more tuned to it. And clearly this is what they've been working on in camp. So massive hats off to them for for having that. But you can see that's the plan. And then you get to the stoppage. And the stoppage is what I call chickens coming home to roost. Now go back to Eubank at his flashiest, the Nick Blackwell fight, the Quinlan fight, the DeGale fight, whatever fight you want to choose. And you remember there'd be all that rolling, dipping, slipping, sliding head movement. Look at what they've done. Team Smith just looked and went, he does a lot of dipping to his right, but he doesn't move his feet to the right. So he's still in the same place. If we can come up, we're going to catch him. And so all of these people, and this is a very London thing, who love to use the shoulder roll without understanding the science behind it, and all they've ever done is copy Floyd without really nailing the science of how the shoulder roll works, where you're supposed to be. And it's little nuances, like small, subtle details. An example of which is when you roll the shoulder, you don't just roll the shoulder in the same plane of motion. The shoulder has to come up and then around. And in going up, you deflect right hands up and over your temple. And then in coming round, if, the, if it's a more of a bowling hand, you manage to evade the shot completely. But another component of that is the ability to then move yourself back into the right. So that if a left hook does come, you're in control of that interaction. Or if another right hand comes, it's going to miss for sure. What you don't do is try all of that in a corner with no escape. You don't try shoulder rolling, bobbing and bouncing when you're in the corner because essentially Liam Smith put him in the blender. Just threw enough shots, and he knew that Eubank, if you two-handed, two-handed attack, Eubank couldn't go left, couldn't go right. Didn't have that kind of nous to just go, actually, I'm in a bad position, let me hold. Which would have been the right thing to do. Let me hold. So he's in the blender with Liam Smith. Now, I don't know if Liam was targeting this, but he let his hands go, right? And remember, there was a... There was a right, was it a right hand that got to Eubank? And that's the one that seemed to wobble him. Yeah. And Eubank's almost gone back, looked the wrong way, gone back to look the right way. And Liam sort of come up with like a sort of half hook, half uppercut. That's just got him. And that was, that was all she wrote. And to see Eubank just literally crumple from that first knockdown. Now I'm sure massive inexperience. And I guess this is what happens with, there's an art to getting knocked down. And I remember Mick Carney explaining that. Like David Hay got dropped by a kid called Jim Twight. Ironically, who was also a Southpaw. He got dropped by a kid called Jim Twight who boxed out of Triumph in Coventry in, was it the ABA final? 
And because David had never been dropped like that, he didn't know what to do. So he was all over the place. Fights, fight gets stopped. I mean, David's livid, but you learn. The way you learn these sorts of things is you've, you've just got to go through it and then you've got to learn from it. And clearly Eubank hadn't prepared himself for that. And then that was, after that, there was no recovery. Eubank's legs were so gone that he was literally just on instinct. And actually that looked very, very dangerous at that point because Liam had absolute clarity of thought. It's not like Liam was tired in round four. That could have ended very badly. And Eubank just didn't know what planet he was on. Fight gets stopped. He's still trying to go for, for Liam Smith and it took Joe McNally, his name gets mentioned again, to actually prevent further disaster from happening. So in all of that, now when we look backwards and we go, you got Joe McNally. While he's not Roy Jones, he's a, a respected figure. He could sit in a room and talk boxing with authority. Yeah, he's credible. You've got the whole Liverpool boxing family around Liam. Offering support, guidance where needed, whatever. Then you've got that Smith family and their kind of British legacy that they want to uphold. And then you've got that whole city backing you and that underdog status. Maybe if we'd written all of these things down and then looked on the other side and gone, Roy Jones Jr. KFC. Maybe we would have backed Liam a bit more. And I guess this is where we're swayed by our own biases and prejudices and so forth. And I think deep down, we also wanted Jr. to, to do well after the Conor Ben thing. But when you look at the, the experience and the wisdom and the horsepower that was coming out of the Rotunda and the Solly, and then the young guys they're working with, like Dexter McCars and all these guys, you're starting to go... <laughs> That's a, that's a big movement over there. And you can now see why maybe Josh Taylor's gone out that way. Will Josh be able to tap into the same things that Liam was able to tap into? I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be the same for Josh. But for Liam, that's a very, very powerful combination. And that's what I want to do. I wanted to make sure that Liam got all of his shine and all of his credit on this episode because he did everything he was supposed to. He had no idea which Eubank was going to show up. Was it going to be the, the hard punching combination punching monster? Or was it going to be this ragbag collection of weird styles? He didn't know. So he prepared for the best version and he boxed as if he was facing the best version. And he won. Boxing 101. But is it right for us to talk about Liam and not talk about Chris? I think we should talk about Chris. So let's, irony is a wonderful thing, isn't it? For, for some of you who are old enough to remember this, go back to 2004. Roy Jones at light heavyweight fights Glenn Johnson. There are so many parallels between that fight and this fight, ending in a similar way, but obviously Roy lasted longer. But if you go back and watch that fight, Glenn Johnson just gets Roy to the ropes. Gambles that this isn't the Roy Jones we remember. This isn't the Roy Jones who dominated in the 90s. This isn't the same Roy. Pushes him back on the ropes and goes, now we're going to find out if your fundamentals are as good as your flashy stuff. And Glenn just did everything Liam Smith did, Glenn Johnson did backed him up with a double jab once he had him on the ropes just unleashed 
whatever he could hit, he was hitting. Until in the ninth round, he poleaxed him with a right-hand left hook, and that was Roy sleeping. Now, you'd think Roy had 19 years to reflect on this and go, what would I have done different? What would I have done better? And he seemingly sent Chris out with the same nonsense he did in 2004. Honestly, go, go on YouTube and watch that fight, and you tell me if ever there was someone who should have known what was coming, it's Roy Jones Jr. How did he get it so wrong? I, I tweeted this during the fight. This Roy Jones stuff has to stop. Like I've seen him in the UK. And look, I respect Roy as a boxer. I think Roy is one of the greatest human beings to ever engage in combat of any description. I believe he did things that don't make sense at the highest level. Prince Nassim did things that don't make sense, but we never say he did it at the highest level because there are a load of names he never tested that against. But Roy did, and Roy was able to do it. You're not going to be Roy Jones Jr., no matter how many years you spend with Roy. Because Roy doesn't understand how he was Roy Jones Jr. That's the thing about greatness. Greatness is taking stuff that everybody else knows and everybody else can do and finding a different way of putting it together. That's what he did. He was never going to do that with Eubank. And so what it means is we've kicked this can down the road for Eubank's entire career where we're like, he needs some fundamentals. Now you're 33 years old, you're not going to get the fundamentals. And this is where him and Joshua are almost like, their careers almost are the inverse of each other. So Anthony Joshua, fundamentally sound. That's why they called him robotic. Joshua's fundamentally sound, can get his hands up, can throw a jab, can throw a backhand, can do all of that stuff. But he's frustrated because he can't do the sexy stuff. Whereas Eubank Jr. tries to do the sexy stuff and he's frustrated he can't do the basic stuff. But I don't think he's ever tried to do the basic stuff. Because he's seen himself as a brand for so long that the Eubank brand has to be flashy, spectacular, but in terms of personality, 100% stoic. And that's all well and good until you fight someone like Liam Smith. And I told you the Brains Trust had done their work and they'd said, well, if he's being trained by Roy Jones, what if we try the Glenn Johnson approach? Now, if that's what they did, kudos to them. If it's an accident, still kudos to them. But the Roy Jones thing hasn't worked. I'm never going to tell someone, get rid of your trainer. I'm just saying that Roy Jones thing hasn't worked. And for all of you guys floating around South London, you know, being, being honored to be trained by him, cool. But just remember, yeah, you've seen what his work does. So don't be in a rush to run to these American trainers as if they can give you stuff that you don't have because I don't believe that's necessarily true. And also, you may not be technically or psychologically equipped to cope with what they give you, right? So the Roy Jones thing, for all the reasons I just mentioned, what a disaster. This should have been the fight he got most right and he should have been able to come out in a press conference and say, Glenn Johnson did it to me. Do you think I was going to let it happen to Chris Jr.? No way. And then we would have said, God, okay, Roy's a thinking coach. But now we realize, eh, whatever, whatever. Great fighter, undecided as a coach. So now let's talk about the weight. Boxing history tells you fighters get bigger as they get older. So if you think about this, 
when Ali was the same age as Eubank is now, he was fighting the thriller in Manila. Did you see him trying to dance around? Did you see him trying to be a reflex fighter in the thriller in Manila? In Manila? No. When he fought George in the Rumble in the Jungle, was he trying to be a slickster? No. He relied on his fundamentals. He relied on Naus. He relied on experience. He relied on having been in these situations before, like Liam Smith did. Eubank's still trying to be a 25-year-old boxer in a 33-year-old's body. Who's going to have that conversation with him to say, you've got to be a bit more conservative now? That stuff that you used to do for fun, you can only do for a minute of each round now. And he found that out. He found that out. He wasn't physically equipped to do what he wanted to do. Now, is the weight an issue? Yeah, like, should he still be 160? No, he should probably be a super middleweight now. Because that's where he campaigned for ages. He fought George at Super Mid five years ago. De Gale at Super Mid, what was that, three years ago? Why would you then come back down in your 30s? It's the height of arrogance. And this is, this is why Eubank Senior has been missed from Chris's life for a long time. For two reasons. One, I don't believe anyone reads a fight better than Chris. No one around Chris Eubank will read a fight better than his dad. His dad would have known what Liam was doing from the start and he would have, he'd have given his son the right advice. I've sat next to Chris at shows before. Now, I remember we were at the Haringey and one of my lads was boxing just before his son and we had a great conversation during that fight and he was just giving guidance. And I was like, wow. He, he was seeing stuff that I wasn't seeing and I was grateful for that because it helped me grow as a coach as well. And then when his son was boxing, just the insight he was giving... Incredible. So why not have him there? I'd rather him than Roy Jones. That's for damn sure. Would he, would he have even allowed this to happen at 160? No. Because he would have known Chris can't make 160. I don't know if anyone saw the picture Chris put up of how he looked before the weigh-in. Because I did. And I sent it to a friend of mine who does contest prep for bodybuilders. And I said, what do you think about this conditioning? And he just said, this is Olympia level conditioning. Not Olympia level size on the legs, but the conditioning, the vascularity, the lack of fat and just how close the skin was to the muscle. And I said, OK, now, if you were going to box for 12 rounds, would you want your legs to look like that? And he just said, hell no. You can't perform in that condition. You just can't. So was it the height of arrogance for Chris to believe that he could do anything he wanted and no one could challenge him? Because if it was, Jesus, you just got Glenn Johnson. Your, your reputation's in tatters because you couldn't see the bigger picture. That's a real shame. Nothing worked. The jab wasn't authoritative. It never has been with Chris. And you're not going to learn that at 33. The combinations that used to be there weren't there anymore. His ability to have people fearing what was coming is all gone. Instead, you've got this weird clone of a Roy Jones. It's like, you guys will know this, right? You know when someone comes into the gym and they've been watching a boxer on YouTube without really understanding the, the underlying theory and framework of why they're doing what they're doing. And they'll come in and they'll just ape all the movements like a James Tony or a Floyd Mayweather. And you can see it because it's like a real poor cardboard cutout version. 
And then they get hit in the face and it all goes to pieces. That's what seemed to happen on Saturday night. I'd be very worried if I was Eubank because I don't know if 160 is a safe weight for him, number one. Number two, even if he did rematch Liam, and I, I hope they do the rematch at 160. I just think if you beat him once at 160, you'll beat him again at 160. So why, why play with the parameters and why risk his health? But let's come back to it. The Roy Jones experiment has failed. Not having your father there massively failed and backfired on you because you need that protection. And you need the intelligence. Like I said, look at the brains trust around Joe McNally in Liverpool. Chris doesn't have that in Hove. Definitely not with his old man away. And then the third element is all of these people he surrounds himself with. It's like, are you a boxer or a celebrity? And I, I get it. I get it. I think, I think Chris is a star when it comes to boxing. I think boxing needs Chris. I think boxing needs a winning Chris Eubank Jr. I do. Whatever that weight is, it needs a winning Chris Eubank Jr. But it needs a Chris Eubank Jr. who causes havoc like the old days. This trying to be a better boxer in your 30s stuff needs to stop. Because that, the Saturday's defeat has tanked a lot of reputations. It's tanked Chris's. It's tanked Roy's. It's ta <sighs> it was terrible in there. It was clueless is how I describe it. It was clueless. It was rudderless. It didn't look like they'd prepared properly for Liam Smith. They, I don't want to say they took him lightly, but they hadn't prepared for the best version of Liam Smith. And they'll pay, they paid a heavy price for it. Because what do you do now if you're Chris? You've got Billy Joe saying he's washed up. Billy's almost like, oh, if the money's right, I'll fight him. But what am I going to get from fighting him now? Nothing. So where do you go? The Kell Brook fight's long gone. And having looked at that, I don't know if he would have been competitive in that fight either. But at least that fight now opens up for like a Liam Smith. So if you're Eubank Jr., you're fast running out of options, but you've got to be realistic with yourself and say you're a super middleweight. You have been a super middleweight for the last five years, for God's sake. Just go back and do that. But... I, uh, this goes to show, guys, as much as we look at these guys on pay-per-view and earning loads of money, and we assume that, yeah, they must have top-tier support around them. Boxing's still a cottage industry. Still a cottage industry. You know, look at, look at, look at Eubanks' legs, and, you know, my friend Des was talking about this. Why don't boxers work on their legs more? It's a good question. But you feel if Eubank worked on his legs, he'd never make middleweight again and he shouldn't be making middleweight this is the point I'm sure Liam Smith loved the fact that he didn't have to cut down to 154 so his camp is happier because he can eat more of what he wants whereas Chris can't I just boxing is this really simple sport that's complicated by people for no reason other than their own enrichment and Chris has paid a heavy price for that I don't know where he goes next I want to see him box again, but not not a middleweight and definitely not below middleweight because, yes, you may be able to make the weight, but after what we saw yesterday, you went from a guy that withstood every punch from everybody, comfortably, by the way, not wobbled, not shaken, nothing, to being crumpled by a former junior middleweight. 
if I don't accept the weight cut affected Eubank, I have to look at Liam Smith as taking drugs and I don't want to do that. So we have to conclude the weight making is what affected Eubank's punch resistance. Because remember, when you cut weight, particularly in that last week, you're not losing muscle and you're probably not losing body fat. You're, you're losing the micros, the things that help with neurotransmitters, the things that help you with your ability to recycle choline, the things that help you recycle lactate, all of these things, you're affecting your systems. When you, in that final week of cutting weight, you're affecting your systems. And the chances are you won't recover in time by fight night. That's a huge issue from a safety perspective. Someone has to stop these guys signing up for fights that aren't healthy. I wish the board did more to say, no, there's certain fights we're not going to approve. You're too old to be making that weight. Isn't this what the board is supposed to do? Have the interests of the fighter at heart? Because at the moment, they don't seem to have that. But that's what I would say. Um, the weight making had to have been a factor. But like I said, Liam Smith isn't to know that. Liam Smith's got to assume that the monster Chris Eubank's going to show up. And he dealt with him accordingly. That's a fantastic night. We also need to touch on Conor Ben, because you knew Conor Ben was going to insert himself into the discussion. And Conor Ben, the guy who tested positive for Clomid twice. The, as things stand, the drugs cheat. The guy who can't explain how he's gone from junior welterweight to middleweight. Can't explain it at all. When he used to say, I could never fight Eubank because I'm not a natural middleweight. Say that again, I am not a natural middleweight. So he pipes up and he's like, it's lucky you didn't fight me at 160 because you would have got obliterated. Well, you know, had you stuck to the rules of the game, you wouldn't have made 160 pounds. It was an unbelievably poor taste. Unbelievably poor taste. And I, so here's what I'll say about Conor Ben. And I think you find out who someone is truly in adversity, right? You find out who's got character, who's got heart, who's got spirit in adversity. So here's what I'm going to say. And I'm unequivocal in this. When they brought Conor Ben out, they tried to create this return of the Dark Destroyer. They got all the silly tats and the lifestyle and all of this and the kind of fake Taui energy. And that's all good. Look what happened when the first setbacks came about. You suddenly realize this is a kid who did nothing but go to private school his whole life. This is a kid who's never been poor. This is a kid who didn't even grow up in this country. This is a kid who grew up in Spain amongst privilege, then grew up in Australia amongst privilege. And he's behaving like a privately educated rich kid now because he's talking and not allowing people to respond back. Yeah, I'm just going to say what I want, but I'm going to turn the comments off so no one can respond back. Just get off social media. If you don't like what people say, get off social media. But you want to be on there like a spoiled brat taking shots at people. The thing is, it seems Tony Sims is okay with this because I always had Tony down as being old school where it's like, mate, you got to front up. Yeah? You got pinged for this. You got to front up. And I haven't seen that. I, I, I think he's been in, behaving in incredibly bad taste, but it's something we, we've just had to get used to, I guess.
but there's been a lot of this distasteful behavior from people in boxing, trainers, fighters, etc., who are making fun of Eubank Jr. And here's the thing. When we make fun of them in their moments of crisis, what happens? Oh, you're affecting my mental health. Oh, why are you so cruel? Oh, be nice, be nice, be kind. And they forget this when they want to stick the knife in. This is what I've told you. Mental health in boxing is a big fiction. A lot of these guys talk out their backside. What they don't want is they don't want the criticism that comes with the territory. They don't want the criticism that comes from being mediocre. Yeah. But they love to dish it out, don't they? And it's not just people in boxing. You'll see boxing fans dishing it out, saying, oh, I'm glad Uban got starched. But imagine something happened to their dad and you tweeted, I'm glad your old man got run over. What sort of person would you be? We all need to do better. <laughs> we all need to do better. But in closing, I'll tell you who doesn't need to do better. You know who doesn't need to do better? Go back to, I think it was February 2018. And just remember, Prince Nassim Hamed, he, he, he shone a light on everything. And I think the, the four and a bit years, nearly five years since, you can't give an example of where he was wrong. And that's, that's sad, isn't it? You've had five years to prove Prince Nassim Hamed wrong. And five years later, you've validated everything he said. And I don't think there's much more I can say on the subject. Now, I know people want a full review of the card, but that can come on Monday. Let, let, me, let me process it. And also, I want, I want, to, I want to hear the Hearn, the Hearn sermon, the, the briefing, because you know he's going to be sniffing around Liam Smith now, right? Looking for opportunities to, to get Conor Bennon because Conor's got nowhere to go. Don't forget this. Conor got to 160 to fight Eubank, and if he had won that, then there would have been another big fight, maybe even against the Triple G. That fight's now gone. So where do you go? It's not going to be Kel Brooks. I don't think Kel will work with Eddie again. So now you're going to hear the posturing for... Yeah, you're going to hear the posturing for Liam Smith and it's going to be cringeworthy. But this is, this is the sort of stuff he does. I guess we just got to chalk it up to the game. But like as I say, as always, if you enjoy the content, like and share it. And the important thing I'll say is hopefully after this episode, I'll get some more love in the city of Liverpool. Mm -hmm.